Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, we've come once more to the great and holy season of Lent. Now, Lent by its nature is a desert time, which is to say a time of simplicity, purification, and asceticism. We notice now in Luke's account of the temptation that the Spirit himself led Jesus into the desert. It's not some some wicked power that leads him there. It's the Holy Spirit of God that leads him into the desert. So as we begin Lent, our desert time, think of that. It's the Spirit that leads you into this holy place. Notice, please, in so many of the great figures of salvation history, think of Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, and it goes on and on. A period of testing or trial is required before they can commence their work. Watch that pattern throughout the Bible. Now, you see the same thing in the initiation rituals of primal peoples. Before a young man is ready to uh, undertake his life's work, he has to go through a period of testing and trial. See the same thing in, in modern cinematic form in Star Wars. Luke Skywalker has to go through his own initiation. The desert represents a stripping away, listen now, so that the fundamental things might appear. That's the desert, stripping away so as to make the fundamental things appear. In the desert, there are no distractions, no secondary matters, no diversions. Remember Blaise Pascal, the great um, mathematician and Catholic apologist, talked about divertissement diversions. And he said, most of us spend most of our lives with diversions, things that distract us from the essential matters. Well, see, the desert is a place where you strip away divertissement. Everything is basic, necessary, simple. Just think of survival. You know, in the desert, you're not talking about secondary or tertiary matters. You're talking about life or death. The desert concentrates the mind and the heart. And so, one discovers in the desert strengths and weaknesses he didn't know that he had. It's like purifying a metal in fire. Now, of course, Jesus didn't have to deal with sin the way the rest of us do. But in his humanity, he certainly knew temptation. Therefore, he had to confront the temptation toward certain negative things before he was able to undertake his work. 
So in that way, we can all identify with his time in the desert. We can learn from his wrestling with three of the most basic temptations that we human beings face. Then we're ready to resume our work. So, we hear that he fasted for 40 days and afterwards was hungry. Seems, of course, like the understatement of the year, doesn't it? At that point, the devil said, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, there's nothing in the world wrong with bread or with food and drink in general. We don't adopt a puritanical attitude toward these things. But, as every spiritual master has recognized, there is a problem with making sensual pleasure the most basic good of your life. And of course, don't think for a second this is some odd little abstraction. And This is something that an awful lot of people do. It's a hedonistic attitude, a sensualist, materialist attitude toward life. Eat, drink, and be merry. Food, drink, and sex become the dominant concerns of your life. Now, talk to anybody, if you doubt me, anyone who's become addicted to these things. A lot of people addicted to food in our society. A lot of people dangerously addicted to drink, drugs, sex, pornography. See, this is what we're talking about if we extrapolate from this temptation to turn the stones into bread. It means turn sensual pleasure into the dominant force in your life. Now, what do we learn from this encounter between Jesus and the tempter? We learn that what is most basic is always the will and purpose of God. Nothing wrong with food, drink, sex, sensual pleasure, but what's most basic is doing the will and purpose of God. This is why the Lord counters the tempter with, one does not live on bread alone. One of the most famous one-liners in the New Testament, but boy, it's worth uh, reflecting on, isn't it, friends? We don't live life now in in the sense of capital L, life. Life is not just about sensual pleasure. And more to it, once we are clear on what is basic, then we will know how to handle food and drink and sex. It's a very important principle. Because if we don't get the fundamental thing right, then those three good things will in fact turn on us because we won't know how to handle them properly. We don't live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what should be the organizing principle of your life. And so, everybody, as Lent commences, as we enter into the desert, we confront our own temptations, our divertissement, our diversions cast aside. A good question to ask. Have I made sensual pleasure too central to my life? Can I hear echoing in my own heart these words? One does not live by bread alone. Second temptation has to do with the lure of power. 
showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a single instant, the devil said to him, I shall give to you all of this power and glory. All will be yours if you worship me. Now, first thing to notice is how devastating a critique of worldly power this is. In fact, I don't know any other place in the literature of the world where worldly power is more thoroughly criticized than right here. Why? Because all the kingdoms of the world are portrayed as belonging to Satan. Not some of them, not most of them, all of them. Where does worldly power and glory come from? Well, the pretty clear implication of this story is it comes from the devil. Now, again, we have to be a little bit careful. Neither power nor glory in themselves are bad things. How could they be? Since God himself is described as all-powerful, and we hear over and over again that God is resplendent in glory. See, here's the trick, though. When worldly power and glory are worshipped, see, I'll give these all to you if you just bow down and worship me. When they become absolutely central and basic to one's life, then we do indeed have a problem. You know, God might invite some people to wield power and indeed to experience glory as part of his design. You know, think of popes over the centuries who've had enormous amounts of power in terms of uh, governing the church. Think of some political figures, Roosevelt and Churchill, Lincoln, many others, that we would say, well, maybe they were allowed to have power because they were able to work very good things with it. And some figures that are covered in glory. Okay, but they were able to accomplish good things. But God's plan for you, not power and glory, is what is fundamental. And it might involve for you anything but worldly power and honor. In fact, God's plan for you might involve your being forgotten, even dishonored. Think of the little flower, Therese of Lisieux, in her obscure convent in the northwest of France, known to her family and to the handful of fellow sisters in that convent when she died at the age of 24. In her own lifetime, honored, I mean, hardly, power, she had none of it. But yet, she so thoroughly followed God's will for her that she's become a source of enormous um, influence. Think of someone like Maximilian Kolbe. Talk about someone who was who was powerless and dishonored, even to the point of being executed. But they were following God's plan. That's why Jesus says, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God. Him alone shall you serve. See, so there's the second question. What's fundamental in your life? Power and honor or doing the will of God? Finally, the devil led Jesus to the parapet of the temple and invited him to throw himself down, confident that the angels would support him. What's at stake here, everybody? I'm speaking now to all of my fellow sinners. What's at stake here is the aggrandizement of the ego. 
What was the temple but the place where God himself is worshipped? It was the high point. It was the summit of Israelite life. Where does the devil put Jesus? At the very parapet of the temple. That means at the height of Israelite life. To put oneself there was to place one's ego at the center of everything. And see, friends, in many ways, that's the very essence of sin. It's what, in a certain sense, all of us sinners do. We make ourselves into God. Because we imagine that we are the center of the universe. We're the still point around which the whole thing revolves. Even the angels, even God himself, will prevent me from being hurt. As I've said before to you, the goal of the initiation rituals of primal peoples was to inculcate in the initiate this simple truth. Your life is not about you. See, it's about God. It's about God's purposes for you. And so here in the, in the Lucan account, we hear, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, if you're testing God, you're now in a superior position to God. God tests people all the time in the Bible. Well, that's fine. That's his business. But you start testing God, you put yourself at the parapet of the temple. You think the world revolves around you. And so, the final good Lenten question to ask, are you the center of attention? Are you on the parapet of the temple? Or are you willing to do the will of God? Friends, go into the desert this Lent, ask yourself these fundamental spiritual questions, and come to this simple and powerful self-knowledge. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.